Uh, we have had a good time through this series. Uh, we have had a lot of people let us know some really specific changes they've made in their lives and in their family as a result of this series. We've had people choose to mend broken relationships at home. Uh, sometimes people who haven't talked to each other for years in their own family. This idea of radical unity, this New Testament vision of radical unity caused them to pick up the phone, uh, text, or call and to mend those broken relationships. Uh, we've had people that have decided to tone down the political rhetoric uh, around, ha around their house or around the office. Uh, we've had people, now get this, this is proof that God is alive and, and well and does miracles. We've had people say, I'm going to choose more than one news source. It's happened. It's happened. And I'm going to kind of spread you know, things out a little bit, get some other opinions, maybe read a little more widely. Uh, we have people made decisions to make new friendships with people in their office that they've seen for years, but they're different than them. And there's been this kind of natural barrier to be proactive and to build friendships with more diverse people. There have, on the other hand, been some people who have been a little nervous. And, and listen, unity makes people nervous. Our brains are wired to be in small tribes of sameness. And so the idea of breaking out of that and getting into that uncomfortable zone of making more diverse friendships and opening our minds up to embrace people more uh, has been a challenge for some people. And um, we navigate that challenge quite a bit here at Rancho, but I have heard the strangest things about uh, Rancho's gonna do this and Rancho's gonna do that. I've heard it all. And I've stopped uh, trying to chase down every one of those things and just smile and say, hey, we are on this journey towards radical unity, which we believe is the vision of Jesus, the vision of the New Testament, and what we'll see today is the vision of the book of Revelation. Now, you might have heard that um, uh, Kanye West came out with a gospel album this week. And uh, yeah, okay, we can applaud that for sure. Some of you are like, why am I applauding Kanye, right? Well, here's why. You may know him for his you know, smooth flow, uh, auto-tuned uh, tracks. You may know him for his interruption of Taylor Swift at the VMAs. You may know him from his uh, marriage to Kim Kardashian. It's five years and going strong, we think. I mean, that's kind of a miracle right there. Uh, you may know Kanye for his uh, occasional support of Donald Trump, which is really strange. He is uh, African-American hip-hop who every once in a while, including just last week, showed some support for Donald Trump. So he's, he's really an interesting character, right? Uh, and you might have heard that he released a gospel album. I think this is true. I read this, that eight of the top 10 songs that were streamed on Spotify were from his album released this week called Jesus is King. Now, it's, it's creating a lot of discussion. The more traditionally conservative evangelicals are like, I don't know about this guy, his life, his choices, you know, some things there. Um, he's also getting a little side-eyed from the hip-hop community with his, with his politics. So he's in this strange kind of funky place. <clears throat> he's also very honest on his album. And I'm going to have you listen to one minute of one song called Hands On. And it's basically his letter to the Christian religion. Very interesting. Take, take a listen. Said I'm finna do a gospel album. What have you been hearing from the Christians? They'll be the first one to judge me. Make it feel like nobody loved me. They'll be the first one to judge me. Feeling like nobody loved me. Told people God was my mission. What have you been hearing from the Christians? They'll be the first one to judge me. Make it feel like nobody loved me. Make you feel alone in the dark and you never see the light, man. You never see in home and you never see the domes. I can feel it when I write. Point of living in the right. If they only see the wrongs, never listen to the songs. Just to listen is a fight. But you whoop me for the fight. It's so hard to get along if they only see the slight from the love of religion. 
What have you been from the Christians? They'll be the first one to judge me. Make it seem like nobody loved me. Pretty powerful stuff, right? Now, here he has a gospel album called Jesus is King. There's amazing tracks on, on that album. This is his honest moment of saying to the institutional Christian religion, I didn't feel any love from you. He loves Jesus. He loves the love of Jesus, but he didn't find that in the institutional Christian church. What have you been hearing from the Christians? Judgment, making me feel like nobody loves me. Uh, only seeing the wrongs for the love of religion. Did you get that? And that is the reputation of the Christian church. And we're taking stock, right? The, the Christian movement is taking stock. Why have three generations now rejected the institution of the Christian religion? And why is it that people like Kanye and others are finding a pathway to Jesus outside the church? Shouldn't the church be as dedicated to radical unity as Jesus himself was? The answer is an obvious yes. But it takes some introspection that, that perhaps our walk with God and our way of, of treating all people isn't about having the right opinions, whether it's political or religious, but about relationships. Maybe our walk with God and with one another isn't about moral policing, but caring for people the way Jesus did. Maybe it's not about sequestering ourselves in small tribes of sameness, but it's about really living the life that Jesus did, a wide open door to everyone. As we've been studying the New Testament for these eight weeks now, we've seen that Jesus tore down the old systems that kept people away from God and kept people away from each other. He tore down the religious and political systems that kept people apart and kept the world distant from God. He established a whole new reality that he called the kingdom of heaven. He, and he showed how to live that kind of life by seeking the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed, the sick, and the sinner. And he embraced them, and he lived life with them, and he hung out with them, and he had dinner with them, and he shared God's love with them. Jesus gave his life to remove every barrier between us and God and every barrier uh, between humankind. He established a new movement where the only law is love, and it should be that the church that claims the name of Christ ought to live the life of Christ, which is to pursue radical unity. And so here we have in the New Testament, we have this brand new church, right? These Christ followers who are primarily Jewish, but being persecuted at every turn. They were persecuted by their Jewish friends and neighbors uh, for following Jesus. They were persecuted by the Roman Empire for following Jesus. They're persecuted in Jerusalem and outside of Jerusalem. And so they're experiencing intense suffering, intense poverty, and so they have some questions. Here they're following the risen king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so in their mind, they're thinking, okay, if Jesus rose from the dead, doesn't he have the power then to make our lives better, to make our lives right, to defeat all the enemies that stand against God? Shouldn't Jesus just fix this place right here and right now? They had questions. Where is all this going? Where is this new Christ movement going? They, they, they questioned, will this global movement actually work? Here they're following Jesus, who was a Jewish peasant. He, he rises from the dead and gives this command and this vision to a few hundred followers. And he says, now go and make disciples of all nations. And they're thinking, wait a minute, here's a Jewish peasant and here's a couple hundred Jewish peasants. Are we really going to make disciples of all nations? Is this really going to work to change the world? They had another question, is, is what would, would the journey ahead hold for us? Is it going to be kind of an easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy right, journey where Jesus just kind of makes things right and opens the doors and defeats all the enemies? Or is this going to be a difficult, long, hard slog? The book of Revelation answers all those questions. And so as we have studied the New Testament in this New Testament survey, beginning with the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the Gospels, and then how the early church in the book of Acts managed 
to have radical unity despite all their diversity. As Steve last week led us through uh, the letters of Paul and this incredible vision of what it's like to love each other and to love the world around us, we're gonna close as the New Testament closes. We're gonna close with a survey of the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation is probably the most controversial book of the Bible. Uh, it has created a lot of discussion and dissension. It's very mysterious. Honestly, it's very odd. It's a very odd book. There's a lot of death and destruction and carnage in that book. There are, are a lot of weird characters. There are um, beasts. Uh, there is a, a prostitute from Iraq riding a seven-headed, ten-horned creature getting drunk on the blood of Christians. That kind of thing is, is happening. Stars falling from the sky in Revelation. And so for 2,000 years, the church has been wondering, how do we read this book? And we're going to solve it all right now. Are you ready? All right, here we go. There are four ways to read the book of Revelation. I only know of four. I studied the book uh, six, seven summers ago. We, we did a pretty comprehensive study of the book of Revelation. There are four ways to read the book. Um, there is a preterist way of reading the book. Preterist is a, um, um, it's, all, it's been around for a while, but it's growing in popularity. There are a lot of preterist theologians. Um, people are becoming warm to the preterist uh, way of looking at, at Revelation. And it essentially says that all of these things in Revelation already took place in 70 AD and in that period of time. If you read the book of Revelation from a Jewish perspective living in Jerusalem, you could absolutely see how the book of Revelation already happened in 70 AD as the Romans uh, invade Jerusalem, they sack Jerusalem, tear the entire city apart, uh, tear apart the temple um, as they slaughter thousands and thousands of Jews and disperse the rest uh, in shame all over the Roman Empire. If you read the book of Revelation from the perspective of a Jew living in Jerusalem in 70 AD, you can see why there would be a parallel here. Preterism would believe then as a result that Jesus has already returned through his spirit, through his church. So preterism is growing in popularity. We just had a, a conference here a couple of months ago that was largely a preterist conference. So there's a lot of sympathy towards that, that way of looking at Revelation. There's another way, which is the historist. The historist, which is now pretty well an, an extinct species, um, believes that the book of Revelation is actually chronicling actual human events through the course of, of the last 2,000-year history. The challenge with that is here you have maybe Bible scholars who are historists, and they look at the book of Revelation, and they have to fit all of the characters in the book of Revelation and all of the events in the book of Revelation and correlate those with actual human historical events, and that becomes a challenge. No two historists agreed on which event in human history correlates with which character or event in the book of Revelation. It became kind of a nightmare, um, and as a result, they pretty well gave up. There are very few historists left. There is the futurist. The futurist approach to the book of Revelation has been the most popular in the West, uh, particularly Western United States, over the last, we'll say, 40 to 50 years. The futurist look at the book of Revelation and says, these are the actual events that will take place in the few years before the coming of Jesus Christ. And it's been very popular. All the popular books and movies have been futurist. If you were raised in a church in California, uh, Nevada, Arizona, you probably were raised in a futurist uh, church that says the book of Revelation is a prophecy about real events that will take place in the uh, end times, the few years before the second coming of Christ. Um, I would assume, just because we're in Southern California, that most people here at Rancho grew up with that uh, perspective, and you might hold that yourself uh, if you've been in church for, for quite a while, that these are prophecies about the end times. 
Futurists um, like to take the book of Revelation more literally. Not entirely literally, but more literally. And so uh, when I talk to a futurist, uh, particularly one who is you know, more theological, and, and they would come to me and say, hey, we just really need to take the Bible more literally. And I would say, I understand that, but sometimes the Bible is not intended to be taken literally, in which case a literal interpretation might be wrong. And I remind the futurists with all kinds of respect, I have a great deal of respect for how futurists love God's word and, and have a desire to, to get it right. I totally appreciate that. But I would often, with respect, tell a futurist, you know what, nobody takes the book of Revelation literally. And sometimes I get a little kind of wound up about that. But I said, hey, listen, in Revelation, it says a star named Wormwood will hit the earth and poison one-third of the waters. Do you believe an actual star will actually collide with the earth and poison a, a, a third of all of the, the fresh water on the planet? Well, that's metaphorical language. But this is literal. The number of years is literal. Oh, why is that literal but the star isn't literal? And um, I kind of ingest, um, maybe with a little bit of a jab, say, if, just take a small star. Just take our own sun. Our own sun is made fun of by other stars in the universe. They call it a white dwarf. It's a tiny little nothing of a star. Even if a tiny little star like a white dwarf would come collide with the earth, I think the least of our problems would be poisoning one-third of the waters, right? <laughs> and there's all kinds of these very extravagant stories in the, in the book of Revelation. And if we, if we strive to take them literally, we're going to have a hard time. For example, the Iraqi prostitute riding a beast with seven heads and ten horns. That's a tough one. Is there actually going to be this creature eating Christians and getting drunk off the blood? I mean, that's in Revelation. So, so it's hard to say we could take Revelation. Literally, no one really does. But um, uh, so futurism is ha has, has challenges and is having significant challenges right now theologically. There are rough things to deal with theologically. And, and so there are f um, very small numbers of, of futurist theologians left. There is the idealist position. That's my position. Um, I'm a minority in this uh, church, in this, I believe, and that's okay. By the end of uh, today, I will probably still be a minority in this. But uh, an idealist takes Revelation as a dramatic epic tale. A dramatic epic tale. That's the genre of this literature. Dramatic epic tale meant to engender feelings, a, a tension between the kingdom of the earth and the kingdom of heaven, and the ongoing struggle throughout history between good and evil. It is a dramatic epic tale. Now, the dramatic epic tale is a genre that's been around for thousands of years. At least 3,200 years, there is, there is evidence and literature of the dramatic epic tale. The human heart loves these kinds of stories. Here's what this genre is all about. A dramatic epic tale tells a story that represents the ongoing struggle between good and evil in an earthly context, mingled with monsters and gods, building toward a final battle, followed by a vision of peace. That's a dramatic epic tale. It's a very, very common form of literature. I'll give you a few examples from the uh, ancient world. If you took an English class in your life, no doubt you studied for a moment Homer's Iliad or the sequel, The Odyssey. It is a human context mixed with monsters and gods, building to a final battle followed by a vision of peace. That's 3,000 years old. The book of Jonah in your Bible could very well be uh, categorized as a dramatic epic tale. You have an earthly context, a sea monster, tensions rising towards a climax, followed by a vision of peace. It's just a, a very common form of literature to bring somebody into a, a more of an emotional experience of the tensions that exist between good and evil. 
usually with a final dramatic battle followed by a vision of peace. The most popular uh, literature and, and cinematic art today is dramatic epic tales. Uh, you may have heard of some of these works. Star Wars, anybody heard of Star Wars? Right? There's a, an earthly human context mixed with monsters, and there's this spiritual element, and there's a final battle, many of them, followed by a vision of peace. How about Harry Potter? Same thing. How about The Hobbit? Same thing. How about Lord of the Rings? Same thing. You have Mordor and Gondor, and there's all these monsters and creatures in this very spiritual mystic. It's all the same kind of thing, leading to a dramatic battle, followed by a vision of peace. It's the same formula every single time. It's a very common genre. That is the book of Revelation. Now, if you're um, you know, watching a Lord of the Rings movie or reading a Lord of the Rings book, do you find yourself saying, okay, here's this creature that comes from the earth. That creature represents this government in, in 17. You don't do any of that. You wouldn't even bother with that because it's not about interpreting the details. It's about the big story. So I hate to break it to the world today, but all of these tens of thousands of books about Revelation and the countless prophecies that try to pin every little detail of Revelation to a future event, they've been wrong every time. It's happened millions of times and they're wrong every single time. So at some point, wave the white flag and to say, maybe we're not reading this book right. If, um, if somebody fancied themselves a football expert, right? And, uh, and they studied football, so they say, and they're, they're trying, you know, they know the game and they know the position and they, they know the schemes, and yet they couldn't predict this, a single winner of a single game for 150 years. Wouldn't you question the person's approach to football? And so the same thing with a futurist reading of the book of Revelation. After millions and millions of guesses about wrong predictions of prophecy, maybe we're missing the point. And maybe it's meant to be a lot more simple. So my book on Revelation uh, wouldn't sell very well. It would be about three pages. I'm going to summarize the whole thing in 12 minutes, and that's all we need. It's a dramatic epic tale. In my opinion, Revelation should be read like a dramatic epic novel, allowing us to feel the tension between heaven and earth while preparing us for a long road ahead, not a detailed prophecy about end-time events. I don't even think it's about the end times. I'm sorry. But we see in the book of Revelation what we see in the life of Jesus, what we see in the Gospels, what we see in the book of Acts, and what we see in the Pauline letters that Steve led us through last week. We see the same exact theme through it all, and it is conveniently radical unity, right? That's what the book of Revelation is all about. So let me give you a 12-minute outline of the book of Revelation. And then uh, what I want to encourage you to do, if this interests you, just sit down and read the book of Revelation like a novel, like a Lord of the Rings novel. And I guarantee you, you're going to go... Oh, that was easy. <laughs> and all this time spent on all these you know, end times prophecies just might not be the point. Uh, the book of Revelation begins with letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. These are, are the brand new churches in Roman territory, and they are struggling. They're struggling. They're struggling with persecution. They are, they are uh, not getting jobs. They are poor. Uh, they are not being cared for and they are being uh, led to their death because they follow Jesus. So life is hard for these seven churches. So John writes the book of Revelation to prepare them for what's coming. Here's how he, how he starts, Revelation 1.9. I, John, am your brother, and I'm your partner in suffering. He's in prison. He's in exile at a far-off island cut off from his friends and family. 
He's being persecuted for following Christ. He says, I'm your partner in suffering. I'm your partner in God's kingdom. And I'm your partner, get this, in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. It's the entire book of Revelation. That, that's what it's meant to communicate, that things are bad and they're probably going to get worse. And for Christians, they did get worse. They got a lot worse. And the book of Revelation prepared Christians to deal with a life of tribulation. So the tribulation in Revelation is not meant for the last seven years of, of all time. It is life. It's just life. Life in a broken world is a struggle. Life in this broken world sometimes has suffering and there are sometimes wars and diseases and natural disasters and persecutions of Christians. That's just the way it is. And just because Jesus rose again from the dead does not mean he's gonna fix it all in an instant. So he was preparing them for patient endurance. And then throughout the, book, the rest of the book of Revelation, it's a ping-ponging back and forth between a view of heaven and a view of earth. So this crew over here, you're a view of heaven. I'm looking around, this, that's appropriate. This is a view of heaven. Good job, guys, this is heaven. Over here, this is a view of earth, just the evil and suffering, and as I see, that's about appropriate here too. So, so we're gonna go back and forth. And this is, this is what the book of Revelation does. It's a view of heaven, a view of earth, a view of heaven, a view of earth. And what we see every time is we see heaven advancing. With every view of heaven in Revelation, it's advancing. With every view of earth, the suffering and evil is also advancing. So it's building this dramatic epic tension as the evil and suffering of the earth advances, as the kingdom of heaven advances towards a grand climax and a victor. And I'm not going to tell you who the victor is at the end. You'll have to wait and see. So there's a, a declaration at the throne in Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 4. So at the, after the letters to the churches in Revelation 4, here's this image. It's an image of the resurrected Christ, the Lamb of God, surrounded by weird angels. No offense to the angels, weird creatures. And here's what they're singing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who always was, the one who is, and who is still to come. So here in Revelation 4, you have a vision of Jesus surrounded by angels who are all singing to him, but there are no people. There are no people. Just make a note of that. Then from heaven in Revelation 4, we go right to the earth in Revelation 5, and seven seals are open. Seven seals. And these seven seals are gnarly. Um, a futurist would take all the seven seals and try to predict a future event. We don't need to do that. It's just, it's just creating a feeling of a broken world. And this broken world has wars and diseases and natural disasters and intense persecution of the church. We don't need to pin those to a future prophecy. It's just the way the world always is. And that suffering does intensify at times. And so these aren't necessarily, you know, um, future prophecies. It's just the way the world is. And here's the conclusion, that evil and suffering will advance on the earth, even though Jesus is on the throne. In Revelation 4, Jesus is on the throne. Revelation 5, the world is still uh, a world of suffering and evil. Then Revelation goes back to heaven. Revelation 7, 9. Now see the difference here. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb, all clothed in white robes. So we see heaven. What's different now? There's people. More people than can even be counted. So Revelation 4, Jesus is alone with some ugly angels. Now he's got people, more than can be counted, right? And they are shouting praises to God. And they're clothed in white. Now keep in mind, they didn't make themselves clean. Jesus made them clean. Jesus clothed them by his forgiving grace. 
And they're standing before Jesus, not because they've earned it by any religion or good works, but they were clothed. Christ clothed them by grace and forgiveness. And so they're standing before the throne, shouting the praises to Christ in unity together from every tribe, tongue, and language. And then the view goes back to earth. There's the seven trumpets. And again, the futurists would want to make those predictors of future events. We don't need to do that. These seven trumpets talk about the further destruction of nature and humanity. Horrific and terrifying images of the earth being destroyed. And we get the same theme coming out of the seven trumpets. This time it's worse. That evil and suffering will advance on the earth even though Jesus is on the throne. Then after that, we go back to heaven with the seventh trumpet declaration that happens in heaven. And this one's, this one's incredible. Revelation eleven fifteen, The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices shouting in heaven. The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Huh? The world full of corruption and evil and suffering and death has become the kingdom of heaven? That's the seventh trumpet announcement. Now, it hasn't happened in full by then, but the announcement goes out that not only does heaven have Christ, not only does heaven have these, these weird angels, I call them ugly, they're just weird, uh, these weird angels, but now heaven is populated with more people than can be counted from every tribe, tongue, and language. And, and this vision is very clear. It includes Jew and Gentile, so it's very diverse. Not only that, but there's this announcement that goes out that the kingdom of the earth that is now full of suffering and evil will become the kingdom of heaven. Man, things are getting better and better with each view of heaven and worse and worse with each view of the earth. So now we go to the seven bowls. Again, the, fut the futurist would try to pin the seven bowls on a future event. We don't need to do that. These seven bowls include unimaginable destruction of the earth through every man-made and natural disaster. These bowls do not need to be tied to an event, but the same theme comes out, that evil and suffering will advance on the earth even though Jesus is on the throne. Now we go back to a view of heaven. Things are getting tense now in the book of Revelation. Uh, the kingdom of heaven seems to be advancing. The kingdom of earth seems to be advancing in its evil. Where is this headed? It's headed to a final climax at some point. Revelation 19.6. Now get this. Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd, the roar of a mighty ocean wave, the crash of loud thunder. Now there are so many people surrounding the throne of Jesus Christ that the sound is like thunder and the roar of the ocean, right? And they're singing together, praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride has prepared herself. This tension that's been building through this dramatic epic tale, heaven advances, the earth advances, you know, the, the glory of God advances, unity advances in all the earth, and yet evil and suffering advance, and it comes to this declaration that there will be a grand radical unity between God and humankind. The wedding feast of the Lamb is coming. And then right afterwards, there is what is referred to in Revelation as the Battle of Armageddon. And a futurist would say that's an earthly battle, and some would call out China and Russia and all kinds of very detailed explanations of that. Again, every guess has been wrong throughout all of history. It's not about a real battle of Armageddon. It's not. It's a dramatic epic tale that always ends with a final battle that represents the battle between good and evil. And just take a guess who wins. It's God, it's Jesus, it's goodness, right? Winds prevails over evil at this final battle. 
Revelation 20:14. here's how it all ends. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. There is a final judgment. Consider it a refiner's fire. Um, I'm sure not a lot of you are refining uh, precious metals in your garage, but uh, if you went home to refine some silver you have laying around, uh, you would, you would uh, heat up and melt the silver and, and the impurities would rise to the top and you would filter out that, that impurity and all that would remain is what's pure, pure silver. That's what this lake of fire is. It's a heating up. It's a, it's a, it's a, final, uh, it's a final time after this battle of Armageddon where all that stands between us and God is done away with. All that stands between humankind is done away with. And all that is left, according to Revelation 21, is the eternal city of God. There's the eternal city of God. All that stands against God is, is, is wiped away like dross off of uh, precious metal being melted. And all that remains is the eternal city of God. Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. That's the grand declaration of the book of Revelation. That there is now nothing that separates humanity from God, nothing. There's nothing that separates us from each other. That, that this new Jerusalem that comes from heaven to earth as heaven and earth collide, this new Jerusalem, this new city is, is us. We are the city of God. The, the apostle John asked the angel, show me the church, and the angel showed him this city, a 1,500-mile cubic diamond with streets of gold and 12 gates that are always open. Hate to break it to you, but it's not an actual 1,500-mile cubic diamond with streets of gold and gates that are made of giant pearls. It's an image. It's an image of the future as God intends it to be. And that future is a glorious future. That future has Christ at the center. That future has all who follow him gathered in unity around Christ, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Right now, at this very moment, two billion people are surrounding Jesus Christ. And what ought to be radiated through his church is the light of God's love. And those gates are always open. Read it. Those gates are always open. And we go in and out of those gates into the world, right? That's a vision of the church perfectly united with Christ and perfectly united with each other and wonderfully opening our doors to anyone who would come. That's the life and ministry of Jesus and that's who we can be. We are the city of God and we don't have to wait for heaven to be the city of God. We can be the city of God right here and right now. And as Kanye and many others have said, they don't get a lot of the light of Christ through the institutional religion of Christianity, but I don't wanna be an institution. I don't want to be institutionally religious. I want us to be a community of Christ followers Amen. who strive to do what Jesus did and to, and to be who Jesus was and to say what Jesus said and to reach out to people who are marginalized and hurting and sick and labeled sinners and to say, you are welcome in our lives and you are welcome in our community of faith. If you're in need, we will serve you without condition and we will welcome you into the city of God into the family of faith. Revelation began with a throne surrounded only by angels, with the earth condemned by its own evil and suffering. 
Revelation ends with a throne surrounded by every tribe, language, and nation enjoying perfect eternal unity with God and with one another as the kingdom of earth becomes the kingdom of heaven. I can't think of a better way to end our radical unity series with that vision of radical unity in Revelation and, and, and this call for us to live that kind of life. Wherever there are people who are apart and divided, we have choices to make. We can bring people together in our homes. We can bring people together in our communities and our neighborhoods, bring people together in our church and our city, and even bring people together in the world to be the city of God, shining the light and love of Christ. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for this eight-week survey through the New Testament. We have, have flown by these 27 books, but I, I think we see very clearly what the big picture is. Jesus came to tear down everything that separates us from you. He came to tear down everything that separates us from one another. And he established a new kingdom of love that he called the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven will prevail over the evil and the suffering and the injustice and the death of this world. There will be a resurrection, not only of Christ and not only of all who believe, but of the whole earth in unity together, surrounding the throne of Christ, declaring the same thing that was declared in Revelation 4, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who always was, the one who is, and the one who is still to come. We can be that city of God right now. We can have the gates of our lives always open to everyone, not clustering in small tribes of sameness, but to welcome the world into relationship, to show love and kindness and mercy and forgiveness to all, uh, to avoid judging as our first reaction and serve and to love instead, and, and that we can be the kind of church that is, is not small and same, but the kind of church that reflects what it's like to be the city of God, where what shines out of Rancho Community Church is the light and the love of Christ and this open invitation for everyone everywhere to join in this wonderful celebration of your love and grace. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.